text this morning comes from the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Getting into the home stretch here, guys. Ephesians chapter 6, verses <clears throat> excuse me, 18 through 20. And in picking up in verse 18, we're picking up in the middle of a sentence, and so it's just a little bit awkward, but there it is. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To the end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Father, this morning we ask that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and show us ourselves in your word. Let us see our need in light of your sufficiency, our brokenness in light of your healing, our sin in light of your forgiveness, and our ignorance in light of your knowledge. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since we've had guests speaking to us this morning, I'm going to be briefer than usual, and uh, I'll try and keep it down to a dull roar. I'm sure that's okay. And if it's not okay, um, I'm sure you'll forgive me because you have to. Jesus says so. so. We, we've just finished our discussion of spiritual warfare and the Christian's armor, and Paul closes off this section with an urgent call to militant prayer on behalf of his ministry and on behalf of his brothers and sisters in the church throughout the whole world. And the way Paul goes about doing this shows us that Paul does not consider prayer as some sort of seventh piece of armor. Rather, Paul sees prayer as something that pervades all of his life, and not in the least of which is the portion of life that's occupied with spiritual warfare. So there's a lot of things to pray about and a lot of praying to be doing. I don't think that prayer is particularly well understood in our day. I, I, just, I think Christians today don't pray because at bottom, not because they're lazy or silly or whatever, they don't understand prayer, so they don't know what they're doing, and so they don't get a lot of profit out of it because they flail around a lot. And it's just hard to do something well when you don't understand it. So let's lay out a little bit of background for ourselves in the brief time that we have left. And I think it would be helpful to begin at Genesis 1 through 3, as it is often helpful. Um, and the reason for that is that salvation, fundamentally, is a restoration of what was lost in the fall, as well as an addition or an expansion on unfallen Adam and Eve's powers and capabilities. I mentioned before a book by a professor at Westminster Seminary called John Fesco, and the book is called Last Things First, and he unfolds all of this clearly. He says, and makes a wonderful case from Scripture, he says, you can't understand the book of Revelation until you understand the book of Genesis. And conversely, you can't understand the book of Genesis until you understand the book of Revelation. 
Well, unfallen Adam and Eve were designed to wield the power of God to accomplish the tasks that God Himself had given to them. And I've asked you to consider before the question, how did Adam garden? And, uh, and I think Jesus answered that question in places like Luke 16 when He talks about the mulberry tree that the believer will speak to and say, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will be done. And I think that's probably how Adam gardened. Now here's the key thing. When Jesus talks about that mulberry tree in Luke 17, 6, He doesn't say, you will ask God to uproot the mulberry tree and cast it into the sea and God will do it and the tree will obey God. Okay? That's an important, that's an important distinction. Because what he says is, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, in this situation, as Jesus describes it, the believer is wielding the power of God directly. And even though God is obviously intricately involved because it's His power that's uprooting the trees, yet the believer is applying God's power directly to the tree in this instance. So there's a, there's a difference here, right? It's not just asking God to do something, there is a difference here. Now, that may sound a little weird to you, and it will be a little weird until we actually experience it one day, but that sort of thing actually is already happening with us all the time. We just don't think about it very often because we're used to it. I, I, I'm gonna, let's do an experiment here. I'm going to say to you, everybody in here, lift your right arm. Just lift your right arm, please. Okay? Now, you can put it down. All right, thank you. You, can, you, you all can just do that, right? Um, you, it's a direct act of your mind operating on your body, but if you understand what the Scriptures teach, you're not doing that all by yourself. That ultimately, behind your ability to say, I'm just going to raise my arm, is the power of God. You're using the power of God, which the Bible says in places like Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, which God pours into you moment by moment. He's delegated that power to your control and to your oversight, and yet it's His power. Calvin says it marvelously. He says, miserable men take it upon themselves to act without God when they cannot even speak unless He grants it. So, so you are empowered by God to do certain things in your body directly. And it's the power of God that enables you to do it. Okay? It, take it out a level. It's the same thing with the weed in your flower bed. You, you find a weed in your flower bed, what's the best way to deal with the weed? The best way to deal with the weed is to pull it. You don't pray and ask God to pull it, you pull it. Why is that? Well, because God has given you dominion over the weed. He's placed it under your power and under your authority. But when you pull it, you are doing so or by directing your body, which is animated by the power of God. So God's pouring that power into you, and you're making decisions about how to use it. You see, we like to envision ourselves as independent actors doing that on our own apart from God, but we're never on our own. 
and we're never apart from God in those cases. Well, unfallen Adam and Eve had other kinds of power given to them by God to manage the creation, but they lost it. They lost a very great deal of it in the fall. Now, one day, you and I who are in Christ will get it all back in the resurrection. That's God's goal in discipleship for us, is to develop the kind of character, the kind of goodness within us, so that we can be empowered by God to do whatever we want. And we'll be able to do what we want, because what we want will always be good, and it will always please God, and it will be deeply good. Now, obviously, we're not ready to have power like that right now. We, we take God's power coursing through our bodies right now that we have kind of authority over, and we use it to do all sorts of things that God doesn't want us to do with it all the time. That's what sin is. We speak. God gives us the ability to speak, and we speak hurtful words with our tongue. We, we misuse the gift of sexuality. We misuse the gift of wine that God gave us. We eat too much food, and we sin the sins of gluttony. We waste the gift of time. So God has said, look, I've, I've given you this gift of your body and all the things that you can do in your body. I'm constantly sustaining your body while you're in this world, and this is what you do with it, right? And, and to be a Christian is to understand that I need to live my life in such a way in the body that God is pleased, that I'm doing what he wants me to do. Well, the fact that we can't even manage our bodies properly is a clue that the real problem is our character. It's our character. We can't be trusted right now with a great deal of power. We, we, our character isn't sufficiently developed to handle it, okay? But God still wants us to begin learning on this side of death, on this side of eternity. So God instituted a wonderful practice and a wonderful power. God instituted prayer. And prayer is God's power-sharing method whereby you and I are trained to wield spiritual power to accomplish the good all around us, but God gets the veto. The, the, the prayer is God's way of training us one day to reign. That's, what, that's why God instituted prayer. He's like, one day you're going to wield enormous power on my behalf. You're just going to be empowered to be my agents in the new heavens and the new earth. Who know, I mean, there will be all sorts of things to do. Who knows? I mean, it, literally the Bible says nobody knows. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, heart has not imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But there's going to be stuff to do, and you're not yet equipped to do it. But this side of eternity is where you start to get equipped to do it, and the mechanism for training you is prayer. And prayer is kind of like driver's ed. You remember when you were driving in driver's ed, and, and you were in the, the driver's ed car, and they would put you in the driver's seat, and the, the instructor would be in the passenger seat, and he had that thing on the floor. You remember what that, the, you remember that? That brake? and he could stop you cold at any moment. Now, there were times when you were learning to drive where the instructor would tell you exactly what to do and you were to do it. And there are times with God where God will tell you exactly what to do and you will do it. 
But there were also times, especially a little bit later on, where he'd say, the important thing now is for you to get experience driving around, so drive where you want. Just go where you want. And so you got to control the car. But if you did something stupid, if you got in trouble, the guy had the pedal on the floor right next to you and he could stop it, all right? So in this little analogy, the driver's ed instructor is like God, you're like the driver, and, and you're trying to learn how to pilot your life. And you're trying to learn how to do what God wants you to do in his power. And prayer is the mechanism by which he can say, that's a good idea, go there, or that's not a good idea, I've got something else for you. Prayer is the brakes. Because we can't be trusted right now to wield power yet. Our character is not sufficiently developed. So, so God gave us this. And the mechanism by which this kind of prayer works is asking. Prayer, fundamentally, is asking and receiving. Now, the fact that God felt it necessary to set up an arrangement like this ought to tell us something. Think for a moment how powerful your words are that you have control over. The Bible is full of counsel about both the constructive healing power of words as well as the incredible destructive power of words. In Proverbs 18.21, it says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Now remember your Calvin quote, miserable men take it upon themselves to act without God when they cannot even speak except he grants it. So God grants you dominion over your tongue, as powerful as it is, and he lets you say whatever you want to with it. Now, you will be held accountable one day for what you do say, and the Bible says that very clearly, every word you will have to give an account for. But you get to take the power that God pours into you for right now and use it as you see fit. But when we get to the issue of prayer, we see that God strictly controls that. That he, he has to cooperate with you actively in order for what you want done to be done when you come to him in prayer. You don't have that kind of more or less free reign over the power of prayer that you have over your tongue or, or the things that you do with your body or the weeds in the garden. Your character, as I said, is not sufficiently developed, not yet. And that's because prayer is the mightiest force in the universe. Prayer is the mightiest force in the universe. Now, it's interesting how much faith we put in our tongues and their ability to, to accomplish what we want and how little we put in prayer. So when somebody's doing something wrong and they're doing something that's bugging you and there's you know, it might, it might not be a sin, it might be a sin or whatever, and you have great confidence in your ability to go in there and straighten them out. And most of the time it doesn't work. And God is like, you know what, why don't you try the more powerful thing to straighten them out and solve the problem? Why don't you just be quiet with your tongue and pray and see what I do? Now it'll be slower than you want it to be, but it will in the end be more effective than you ever could be because the Lord has the heart in his hands and he's the one who changes hearts. So then you begin to learn that I should speak less to people about their, the things that are bothering me and I should speak more to God 
about the things that are bothering me. This, um, this understanding is actually a core mistake in the name it and claim it crowd. Um, they read the scriptures where Christ promises certain freedoms and powers and giftings to his people once they're ready to have them. And they bring them forward to our current state of development and they say, you ought to be able to do all these things if you have sufficient faith. So, you know, they're going to make everybody rich and heal everybody and everything else. And, and what they mean by faith is trying to gin up an internal psychological state of confidence. And then they'll get what they're claiming or manifesting, right? And if you don't get what you want, it has to be, the only reason can be that you didn't have a sufficiently vivid sense of confidence by which they they think that's faith. And so you're, it's your own fault. So if you're praying for healing and you're manifesting and claiming healing in the name of Jesus, they'll say, and you don't get healed, somebody didn't have enough faith and they short-circuited the process. And so they make you feel bad for an outcome that you shouldn't feel bad for because that's not what prayer is and that's not what faith is. That's, faith is, the, is the, not the opposite of doubt according to the Bible. Faith is the opposite of sight. Think about it. Faith is not the opposite of doubt. Faith is the opposite of sight. Faith is the organ of the soul that sees things as they really are, invisible things. And they're really real. They're just not visible. And faith is the organ by which you perceive or see the invisible. That's why in Hebrews uh, chapter 11 and verse 27, it speaks of Moses and how he wasn't afraid of the threats of the king of Egypt that he could see with his physical eyes. And it says that Moses wasn't afraid of the king he could see because he knew by direct experience about the far higher king that he couldn't see with his eyes, but that he had experience of starting with the burning bush and increasing throughout his life. And it says about him, he endured by faith as seeing the invisible. That's what faith is. Faith is seeing the invisible reality and taking it into account. And so faith will give you confidence, but faith is not the same thing as confidence. And by the way, the, the place where we start to learn how to see the invisible is by going to the scriptures and seeing the promises of God in the Bible and seeing them as objective information about the invisible world and how it works and then doing what God says there. Just, just having confidence in what God says there that, that if I do A, God promises to do B. And so I'm just going to try that out. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then every other thing that you need will be added unto you. Okay, I'm going to try that out. And you try that out, and you learn by experience that it's true. That is faith. What you have done is you have now established effective contact with the invisible. Faith is seeing the invisible. The prayer of faith, then, is simply a request for God to act which is made while taking into account the total picture of reality, both the visible and the invisible. That's what prayer is. 
Prayer is like, okay, God, here's the concrete problem that I can see. And I don't know how to solve this problem using the other things that I can see. I don't have the power, I don't have the money, I don't have the influence, I don't, whatever. But then there's this whole other reality that I can't see except with eyes of faith. And God, I know from this reality that you have control over this problem. And so I'm going to ask you to address this problem. And I'm going to do it in, the, in a certain way, which you can cooperate with or find a different way or whatever, but I'm going I'm to ask you to deal with this problem, to deal with it how you want, when you want, but here's my suggestion. And God is free to take your suggestion, or he's free to say, you know what, I've got a better idea. And if he's, if he's going to take your suggestion, you will see an answer to your prayers that is exactly what you prayed. And if, it's got, if he's got a better idea, you will not see the answer to your prayer and you'll be confused and perplexed and then something else will pop up and you'll go, oh, that's better. God answered my prayer in the, in the intent. I wanted things to be better, but he didn't answer my prayer in the methodology because I thought he ought to go about it this way. And he's far wiser than me. Thank you, God. I bow before your power. I bow before you in prayer. And of course, then, prayer understood that way, increases our understanding of the invisible. It increases our ability to navigate through life and bring good things into being with a confidence and effectiveness because we understand the fuller picture of reality. We see the invisible. And so we're not then hung up on what we can see because we walk by faith, not by sight. We see the invisible. We take the larger picture into account. Now, it's, it's interesting to hear our brother and sister here talk about the, the small number of believers. There's a small number of believers now. But if you're seeing the invisible, you might take into account something like what God said to Paul as he was on his way to Corinth. Don't be afraid. I have many people, I have much people in this city. They just don't know Jesus yet. And you're going to make a deposit, Paul, in Corinth, and they're going to be a complete pain in the rear. You're going to write them a couple of really hard letters and all these other things. But the deposit that I'm laying down in Corinth will bear fruit 2,000 years later. So don't be afraid, Paul. I've got much people in this city. Well, he goes in there. And he talks about how he went in there. In, in, the, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, he said, I didn't come to you with wise words and persuasive power. I came to you trembling. I, I came to you afraid, shaky. So that what is wrought in you would not be a natural result from my labors, but would be a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That is seeing the invisible. God's got all these people. They're going to come when they come. I'm to be the faithful messenger, and I'm not in control of the outcome, but God's going to do something. And that is taking the invisible into account and bringing it forward into this world and then doing something, what, what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. I'm going, to be, I'm going to actually operate according to a set of principles that the world considers foolishness. Why? Because I understand the invisible reality and the act of preaching is what God has ordained for these people to be reached. Well, Paul, I don't, I don't think that's going to be effective. You need a market analysis. 
need to understand what their felt needs are. You, 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 need to, you need to understand how they view the world and what their prejudices are so that you avoid offending them unnecessarily. And Paul's like, I don't need any of that. I just need to come and faithfully share the gospel. And God will take care of it. And you can rest in that kind of confidence because you see the invisible. And of course, prayer is also the way that we partner with God to change things. And the way that we learn more and more about the invisible through experience of God acting in response to our prayers. So let me make a last point here and then we're finished for today. We've said that prayer is asking God and we've seen uh, the scriptures that indicate that there is a relationship between effective prayer and how much faith we have. Jesus said concerning the mulberry tree, if you have sufficient faith, you can say to that tree, be uprooted and cast into the sea. Okay? So there's a relationship between the amount of faith we have and the effectiveness of our prayers. But then we saw that faith is not a, a psychological state of certainty. Faith is an accurate knowledge of the invisible. And so to increase in faith is simply to increase in our knowledge and understanding of the invisible world and the most important person in the invisible world, which is God, and we get that by experience. So faith is not opposed to experience either. It's not a leap in the dark. It's very real. It's very rational response to the fact that there is an invisible world. So what is it that keeps us from growing in faith so that our prayers are more effective and more powerful? What is it that, if you want to grow in faith so that you can have better prayers and more effective prayers, how do you go about doing that? What's the, what's the thing that's keeping you from growing? Well, it's your character. It's the kind of person you are on the inside. And that is why Psalm 66, 18 says, for instance, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. You see, there's a relationship between a character that is being continually formed in Christ-likeness and clarity of spiritual vision. In other words, the better you are on the inside, the more repaired you are on the inside, the more clearly you will be able to see the invisible. And it's not that, it's, it's not that if you're good that God will reward you with more spiritual knowledge. Rather, it's more like the disease and injury of sin causes spiritual blindness and, in, and, and, and that interferes with the functioning of the eyes of faith. It keeps you from seeing the invisible as it actually is. As your character is healed and restored by Jesus, the eyes of faith will see more and more clearly. And the clearer you see, the more your faith is increased. And the more your faith is increased, the more power and understanding you have in your prayers and the better your interactions with God in prayer are, and the more answers to prayer you will receive. So just as a for instance, Brenda Owen had eye surgery a little while ago, and, and during the recovery there was some bleeding in that eye. And she's like, oh no, I can't see anything. The, the blood is clouding my vision. And eventually, though, the eye cleared itself, and it cleared that blood out, but it was a, a slow process, and the vision improved day by day by day until now it's completely normal. Well, if she tried to navigate with just that one eye filled with blood, she tried to drive her car, for instance, that would have been a disaster. 
She didn't have sufficient clarity because she couldn't see. In the same way, when we come to Jesus and we are brought into more and more holiness in our personal character and conduct by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be able to see the invisible more and more clearly. So if you want a better prayer life, you don't start necessarily, I mean, you don't, you don't stop praying, but, but you don't start trying to double down on your prayer life. You start working on your character. You start working on sloughing off sin and taking it seriously, taking it as seriously as God takes it, right? If you understood how your gossip was hindering your prayers, if you really saw it, you'd be like, I'll never do that again. There's too much, there's too much, it's prayer's too important. There's too much writing on this. If you understood how your temper was keeping you from being effective in prayer, if, if you understood how a lack of close fellowship with your brother or sister in Christ who you're estranged from and you won't deal with it is not only hindering your prayers and that other believer's prayers, but the prayers of the whole church, you would say, it's not worth it. And the only reason that you could continue in your gossip or in your anger or in your conflict is because you don't see what it's doing. And you don't see what it's doing because you don't see. So if you want a clear sight upon which an effective prayer life is based, double down with Jesus on what's in your heart. Because out of the heart come all these things that are problematic. And when you begin dealing with those and you begin to become the kind of person who was able to respond to God appropriately most of the time, more or less automatically, you will suddenly discover that your prayer life just goes and takes off because you will be praying with understanding. Our, our inward inclinations to sin and evil are like the blood that, that clouded Brenda's vision and cooperatively working with the Holy Spirit to transform your inner, inward character is like it's like Christ's removal of the blood that allowed Brenda's eye to function like God intended for it to do. And the result is that she can more effectively navigate her life. So, as I said, if you want a more effective prayer life, concentrate your energies on pursuing the renovation of your heart into Christ's likeness. And a rich, wonderful, energizing, joy-filled prayer life will grow up more or less automatically as a result. The more holy you are on the inside, the more powerful your prayers are. Or in the words of James chapter 5, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It accomplishes much. Now that can't be the righteousness of Christ that covers every believer, the alien righteousness that's credited to our account. It has to be the righteousness that's actually inside of you. The kind of righteousness Jesus talked about when he said, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not talking about the righteousness of justification. He's talking about the righteousness that increases in sanctification. Let me just close here with a, a quote from uh, a Puritan named Thomas Case. He said, is there not a regular need in prayer to spread our temptations before the Lord? Is there not a need to pray our hearts into a better frame? 
It was said of Luther that when he found a distemper upon his spirit, that he would keep praying until he had prayed his heart into the frame that he prayed for. By God's instruction, we are able to maintain opposition against evil, the evil that we find in our own spirits. The life of a believer is a warfare. As God teaches us, the soul gradually gains ground against its fleshly opposition. Prayer brings in God, and God gives strength to take back lost ground. We are comforted that all will be done in God's time. I am not perfect, but I will be perfect. And thanks be to God that these things are true.